All right, on to our next chapter, the market revolution. So we're looking at 1790 through 1860. Now, there's going to be a large number of international immigrants that are going to move to the industrializing northern cities. And there's going to be a lot of Americans that, that are currently there. They're going to move west of the Appalachians. And they're going to develop a, a new thriving community along Ohio and the Mississippi rivers. <clears throat> so let's start off with that demographic change. So obviously, we've got the population growth. By the time we get to 1860, we're going to have 33 states in the United States. Uh, the population is going to be doubling around every 25 years. This is going to be because of the, natu the uh, natural birth rate. Now, this is going to be one of the main reasons for population increase, but we're also going to have a lot of immigration. This is going to add hundreds of thousands of people per year. Uh, in 1820, less than 1% of the U.S. population was foreign-born, but by 1860, you're looking at about 13%. Uh, the U.S. was the fourth most populous Western country behind Russia, France, and the Austrian Empire. By 1860, 43 of the United States cities had around 20,000 or more people. And now this is in contrast to in 1790 where there were only two U.S. cities. <clears throat> now this urbanization is not always going to be good. It's going to result in slums crime and obviously filthy living conditions you've got lots of people coming in and living in tight quarters and that's usually what you know that's what, what you end up with especially since we didn't have any kind of um <clears throat> like plumbing system now the irish immigration this is going to be considered part of the old immigration uh, you're going to have the Irish potato famine in the mid-1840s. This is going to leave around 2 million people dead in Ireland. Because of this, the largest group of, group of immigrants to the United States between 1830 and 1860 are going to be Irish because they're leaving this, this famine, this, this, this death, this you know, dark time. Uh, around 2 million are going to arrive between 1830 and 1860. So... At this point in time, there's going to be more Irish people that live in the United States that, than that live actually in Ireland. Uh, they're going to come to the larger cities because, frankly, they couldn't afford to move out west. So they're going to go to places like Boston and New York. <clears throat> now, because they were Catholic and often poor, they're going to be targets for discrimination. So they're going to be hated on by the native Protestants. Um, they're also going to be, there's also going to be substantial hate because they're taking these, these low paying jobs <clears throat> or they'll work for the lower wages anyway. So that's taking jobs away from people who are al already working. So, you know, as we've talked about a little bit, you know, the whole idea of capitalism and getting people to work for the lowest wage. Now, they also had competition with African Americans because they were competing for these low-wage jobs. So, there's going to be this kind of hate between uh, both the Irish and the African Americans. There's going to be a lot of race riots, uh, specifically between African American and Irish dock workers. And the Irish will not support abolition. They're also going to begin to climb up the social ladder because they're able to buy some property. Now, they're not going to go to school. Um, children are, a lot of times, they're going to help their family 
And the way that they do this is by buying a home. So they're not getting more education, but they are able to climb up that that social ladder. Um, the Irish are going to be politically involved as well. They're going to come to control a lot of the political machines in cities. Uh, New York City's Tammany Hall is going to be do is going to dominate the New York politics. Uh, these machines are going to dominate police departments in a lot of these big cities. The politicians are going to court the Irish vote because they're going to be, you know, they're going to criticize the Brit uh, the British. Obviously, the Irish hate the British because that's part of the reason uh, so many died during the the uh, potato famine. Uh, they're also going to become a, a major force in the Democratic Party in the North because, remember, the Republican Party, for the most part, did support abolition. And, you know, as we've already discussed, the... Irish did not. <clears throat> All right, German immigration. Uh, this is also part of the old immigration. You're going to get around 1.5 million. They're going to come to America between 1830 and 1860, and they're going to become the largest group of immigrants by 1900. 100, sorry. Uh, today, there's around 20% of all Americans have some sort of German ancestry. Uh, most of these Germans were uprooted farmers. Many were displaced by crop failure. So, you know, kind of the same reason that the Irish came over. Uh, they're going to move to the Midwest, so around Wisconsin. This is where they're going to build farms. They're going to form uh, influ an influential body of voters, just like the Irish did. They're going to be less politically involved because they're scattered demographically, though. Uh, they're going to get better education than a lot of the existing frontier Americans, they supported public schools, including kindergarten or children's garden. So that's where we got the whole idea was the Germans. Uh, they strongly supported abolition prior to the Civil War. The Protestants were concerned that German culture might alter the American culture. So we've got, you know, that issue there. The Germans often lived in their own towns and they remained separate from other towns because of this. Uh, one of the things that was really important to German culture was beer still kind of is and this is going to actually hurt the temperance movement movement that was going through at the time <clears throat> english immigration and so this is a continuation of the old like really old immigration now uh, after 1820 there's going to be thousands of english immigrants they're going to account for about 20 percent of the total immigrants between 1820 and 1860 uh, many were leaving a tough agricultural condition so again you know it's, this goes all the way back to like farming and whatnot and uh, just like their German counterparts, they are going to remain in agriculture. <clears throat> You're going to have some that will settle in Massachusetts if they have skills in textiles. There's going to be miners that will go uh, into areas like Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And the English immigrants are going to face less discrimination. Sorry, I'm having issues. Uh, they're going to face less discrimination than the Irish and the German immigrants because they're still part of that, you know, that minority. I mean, majority. All right, nativism. Now, nativism is the hatred and the fear of foreigners. So, Irish and German immigrants, this is going to, you know, kind of offend the sensibilities of the Protestant nativists. They're going to fear that immigration would cause, you know, an overpopulation and 
that they would unduly influence politics. The Irish and a large majority of the Germans were Catholic, and it was viewed as a foreign church that was controlled by the Pope. <clears throat> By 1850, the Catholics became the largest religious group in America, and they're going to outnumber the Baptists, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, which, you know, the Presbyterians are, it's a form of Calvinism, <clears throat> and the congrega con Congregationalists. Uh, in 1849, extreme American nativists will form the Know Nothing Party, and they became called that because, you know, when they would ask about their the different things about the party, they would say, you know, that they didn't know or they just wouldn't tell you. <clears throat> uh, part of their platform was to restrict immigration and naturalization, and they wanted laws to be able to, to deport poor aliens. And there's going to be episodes of mass violence that are going to occur in some larger cities because of the Know Nothing Party. So the Industrial Revolution, so we're going to get inventions and innovations that are going to stimulate the, you know, economic growth. So this is the first Industrial Revolution in, Amer in America. <clears throat> so Samuel Slater, he's also known as the father of the factory system. In 1791, he's going to build the first efficient cotton spinning, spinning machine in America, and that was known as the Spinning Jenny. Okay, we got uh, Eli Whitney, and he was the creator of the cotton gin. And this is going to be more efficient than picking cotton by hand. Before this, hand picking about a pound of cotton took a slave an entire day. Uh, cotton production became highly profitable. So this whole idea of king cotton is going to emerge in the South. Slavery which had been dying out, is going to see a dramatic increase because they're able to go through more of the cotton. Uh, westward expansion into Alabama and Mississippi is going to occur because there's an increased demand for land, and it's going to stimulate the U.S. Industrial Revolution by supplying cotton to New England textile mills. Now, before, most of the U.S. cotton was exported to English textile mills. Okay, we get the idea of the interchangeable parts, and this is going to be interchangeable introduced in 1798 it's going to be widely adopted by the 1850s and the basis of the of our modern mass pro mass production is going to, to come from these interchangeable parts this is also where we get the assembly line methods okay we got the sewing machine this is going to be invented by El elias howe h-o-w-e in 18 1846 Isaac Singer in 1851 is going to improve the machine so you know I mean you guys have probably all heard of the Singer sewing machines we used to have a Singer factory in Truman that um, my aunt worked at actually we got the telegraph and that was Samuel F.B. Morris so you know the idea of Morris code <clears throat> Uh, he's going to build a 40-mile line from Washington, Washington D.C. to Baltimore. Uh, the government did not control the telegraph because they didn't feel like it would, you know, they would get their money's worth from this. And eventually, <clears throat> the telegraph is going to provide an instant communication across large distances. 
Charles Goodyear. This is he's going to use the vulcanization of rubber. He's going to create a new industry. Obviously, you know that name from the Goodyear Tire. During this first industrial revolution, you're going to see about twenty-eight thousand patents that are going to be given by the government in the 1850s, compared to around three hundred in the 1790s. Okay, so the Lowell system, L-O-W-E-L-L. This is this is from the textile industry. This is going to spark the Industrial Revolution during the like War of 1812 era. President Jefferson's Embargo Act and the subsequent War of 1812 are, are going to dramatically decrease the U.S. imports because we're not getting along with places like France and Britain, you know, the people we were kind of exporting to. Uh, 1814, Francis Cabot Lowell is going to build the first dual-purpose textile plant in Massachusetts. Now, before him, factories mostly spun thread, and his factory is going to spin the fiber and weave the finished cloth. So, we've talked a little bit <clears throat> about how We would sell the raw goods or we would export the raw goods and then Britain or France would create the manufactured goods and then sell them back to us. Now we have this option that we have the, the finished goods as well. All right, now in 1823, Lowell's Partners, this is the Boston Associates, they're going to build a new plant in Lowell, Massachusetts. The textile factories are going to spring up all over New England and the Mid-Atlantic States in the 1830s and 1840s. Now, eventually, the Boston Associates are going to dominate the textile, the railroad, insurance, and banking businesses throughout Massachusetts. So, they're kind of getting into this whole idea of a monopoly. Now, the Lowell girls, now these were generally local farmers' daughters who were hired to work in these factories, and this is going to provide the, the lure of a more independent life for these young women. <clears throat> now, Lowell promised a strict moral supervision and mandatory church attendance for the Lowell girls, so this is why the, the parents would allow them to go. Um, in 1836, the girls organized one of the first strikes in the <clears throat> in U.S. history because they wanted better, um, better pay, better hours, better conditions, all those things. Uh, water power and steam power are going to gradually replace this female labor. Irish and German immigrants are going to replace the Lowell, Lowell girls as well because they were less troublesome and they would work for very low wages. Now, the question is, why was New England the center of the U.S. Industrial Revolution? Now, the rocky soil that was there is going to discourage any kind of cash crop farming. So, manufacturing was far more attractive for the area. There's going to be a large amount of available labor from immigrants coming over to the ports. Shipping is going to bring in capital, while seaports made it easy for imports and exports. And there's going to be rapid rivers that will provide water power for these running, you know, these factory machines like the spinning jenny. 
Now, the South did not compete with this because the capital resources were all tied up in slaves, and the local consumers were mostly poor and could not afford most of the finished products, so they have to do the raw products. And they were, you know, they had lots and lots of, of land and fertile soil for agriculture. Now, by 1850, the industrial output is going to exceed the agricultural output. The Embargo, Embargo Act of 1807 and the War of 1812 meant that Americans had to produce their own goods. European goods would eventually flood the U.S. market after the Treaty of Ghent, G-H-E-N-T, and that's going to be in 1815. So, you know, it didn't take very long. Uh, the U.S. factories... <clears throat> would end up being crippled by the British goods because they were sold at ridiculously low prices. And we're going to get tariffs in 1816, 1828, and 1832, and they're going to provide some relief to these northern manufacturers. Now, we're going to also get advances in business organization in this time. So, we get limited li liability, which permitted individual investors in cases of legal claims or bankruptcy to be able to protect their assets separate from the company. So it would divide up what your company had versus what you owned, you know, at home. We got the general incorporation laws, and these are going to be passed in New York in 1848. So business people are no longer needed to, you know, they didn't have to apply for charters from state legislature. They were able to create a corporation a lot easier. And then there was free incorporation statutes that were widely adopted in other states. So it's kind of Jacksonian. And there's the Charles River Bridge decision. So this is Charles River Bridge versus Warren Bridge in 1837. Uh, this is, this is going to have to do with Chief Justice Roger Taney, uh, he's going to say the Constitution, you know, reserved the state's power over their own internal improvements. And the significance of it is that it encouraged economic development in transportation and other public facilities via competition. So this is starting to begin to end monopolies in public facilities. And again, this is Jacksonian. So, our northern workers, the Industrial Revolution transformed manufacturing working conditions. Skilled workers and craftspeople were displayed or displaced by factory work. Uh, the working conditions, you know, we've talked about a little bit. They were very oppressive. You had these long hours, uh, pitiful wages, few if any breaks. There wasn't any kind of good ventilation, lighting, or heating because they're going to spend as little as possible. Uh, the workers were forbidden by law to form unions, and there's only 24 recorded strikes that occurred before 1835 because obviously they didn't want them to strike or have unions because they might have to fix some of these things. Uh, women and children typically worked six days a week for extremely low wages. They didn't work on Sunday because Sunday was considered the Sabbath. Um, the Lowell Farm Girls... They're going to be supervised on and off the job. Uh, 1820, about half the nation's industrial workers were under the age of 10. And a lot of them are going to suffer, you know, effects from abuse. Now, there were some gains for the workers. During the age of Jackson, many states granted voting rights to working men. And this would have to be, you know, this is because of, like, the working men's parties. Uh, the laborers are going to seek out the 10-hour workday, higher wages, uh, tolerable working conditions, public education for the kids, and an end to imprisonment for death, debt, or the debtor's prison. Uh, 
which, as we've discussed, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, in 1840, President Van Buren is going to establish a 10-hour workday for federal employees. Now, this is going to be some states that are going to follow suit by reducing work hours, not necessarily down to 10, because this didn't apply to privately owned businesses. Uh, strikes would increase in the 1830s and 1840s, but a lot of them are going to fail because of uh, the scab workers. So basically, these were people that they would just pick up off the, you know, off the street and say, hey, do you want a job? It's going to be this amount of money, obviously cheaper than what, you know, say you were striking, obviously cheaper than what you were being paid. And now you're out of a job and they've got somebody in there for, you know, cheaper than what you were getting. Okay, then there's also the Commonwealth versus Hunt in 1842. So the Massachusetts Supreme Court. They're going to decide that labor unions were legal as long as they were not violent or subversive. But this was more symbolic than actually significant. I mean, it would be this decision, but you've got to keep in mind that a lot of your um, justices, a lot of your officials are being bought at this time. Uh, your Western farmers, so the Trans-Allegheny region. Now, this is going to be especially the Ohio, Indiana, Illinois territories. They're going to become the breadbasket of the United States and would later become the breadbasket to the world. Uh, most of the, pr the produce was sent down the Mississippi River to feed the southern slave states, and corn would end up being used to make liquor and pig feed. Now, the inventions here, we've got John Deere. He's going to come up with the steel plow that will... Break, ugh, sorry, that will break through the the really thick, matted soil of the West. You get Cyrus McCormick, who will introduce the mechanical mower reaper. Uh, basically, it did the work of five men, and it's going to be the most significant technology on the frontier. And farming is going to change from subsistence, meaning to take care of like your own family or. Maybe you and like a couple of other families will work together, but it's going to go from subsistence to large scale specialized cash crop agriculture. So debt is going to ensue as farmers bought more land and more machinery. They're going to produce more than their markets could consume and they're going to begin looking for new markets further away. So this is this, you know, this is kind of where we get the transportation revolution. Now, the prime motive of this was the desire of the East to tap the resources of the West. So, it's, you know, kind of moving some of that agriculture. This is going to create a national market economy, create regional spe specialization, meaning the West was would specialize in grain, the East in industry, and the South in cotton. And it's going to facilitate the movement of America's population westward because it's going to be easier and faster. Now, the transportation condition, conditions prior to the transportation revolution were very poor. Roads were made, you know, they're dirt roads. They're going to be bad a lot of the year. They're dusty in the summer. They're muddy in the, in the rainy season. And it's going to cost more to haul a ton of goods nine miles inland from the ocean than it, than it is to transport it from Europe just because of everything that's having to go on with it. <clears throat> Uh, rivers ran mostly north and south, so east-west travel was often impossible for any kind of freight, and then the dry season reduced rivers to small streams, so it made it even more difficult. In 1790, we get our 
first turnpike. And this is the Lancaster Turnpike in uh, Pennsylvania. It was built by a private company and became highly profitable. Uh, these hard service road is going to connect Philadelphia to Lancaster, which is about 60-ish miles away to the west. Uh, tolls were collected. There's going to be a barrier of sharp pikes that had to be lifted uh, once the toll was paid. Now, the significance of this is this is going to touch off a turnpike building boom. There's going to be opposition to the turnpikes as well. There's going to be states' right advocates. They're going to oppose federal age aid to local internal improvements. The eastern states were concerned over population growth and the new political power in the west. Uh, in 1811, there's going to be work on the Cumberland Road, the National Road. This is when it's going to begin by 1852. It's going to link Cumberland in western Maryland to Vandalia in Illinois. This is going to be about 590 miles of road that's going to be supported by state and federal funds. It's going to end up being a vital highway to the west because we can carry fre uh, freight cheaper. You're going to get a lot of immigrants moving west, and these cities are going to grow dramatically. And with that, land values are going to increase. Now, one of the major modes of transportation westward were the Conestoga wagons, or the covered wagons. They're about 20 feet long, 4 foot deep, and obviously very uncomfortable, but they're going to be very durable. We also got steamboats in this time. So initially, most of river travel was done by these flatboats on like the Ohio and the Mississippi. In 1807, Robert Fulton is going to employ a steam engine on uh, the, the ship called the Claremont. This is going to leave New York City and it's going to go about 500 miles up the Hudson River to Albany in only 32 hours. Now, the significance of this is it changed all of America's navigable systems or navigable streams into a two-way system. So, your, you know, the, the carrying capacity of a river is going to double. Populations are going to cluster along the banks of the rivers, and the profitability of these manufactured products are going to go up because you're going to start to get this western market that's going to emerge. The Erie Canal is going to be completed in 1825 in upstate New York. This is going to be about 360 miles uh, of a canal that's going to link the Great Lakes with the Hudson River. Uh, your, your state rights advocates are going to, again, you know, be upset with the federal aid. And the state of New York is going to end up having to pay the entire thing. Now, the impact of the Erie Canal is the cost of shipping a ton of grain is going to fall from like $100 to $5. Shipping time is going to be reduced. Land values are going to skyrocket. Um, Great Lakes towns, they're going to explode. There's going to be places like Cleveland, Detroit, and Chicago. And your New England farmers are going to be impacted by the competition from the West. The most significant aspect of the transportation revolution is going to be the railroads because they're fast, they're reliable, and they're cheaper than canals to construct. The first important line is going to be the Baltimore and Ohio line. Uh, the Baldwin Locomotive Works 
is going to end up being the largest U.S. manufacturer of, of, of trains, of locomotives. By 1860, there's going to be around 30,000 miles of railroad track that was laid. A lot of this is going to be in the industrialized north. The horse-drawn railroads were also used for mass transit in uh, major cities. So, something you would kind of more think of as like a trolley. Uh, by the time we hit the Civil War, there's going to be a national market economy that's going to emerge. The East, West, and South are going to specialize in certain economic activities. The transportation system is going to be integrated into the three regions of America. And the self-contained local economies are going to give way to a national market. So let's get into that regional specialization. So in the East, obviously it's industrial. They're making machines and textiles for the other two regions. This is going to be the most populous region, uh, and about 70% of them are going to be manufacturing workers. In the South, so the main thing is, you know, cotton for export to New England and Britain. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of slavery. Uh, there's going to be a resistance to any kind of change in the economy and culture. In the West, it's going to become, like we've talked about already, the nation's breadbasket. So you've got grain and livestock production. It's going to be one of the fastest growing populations. There's going to be political implications that are going to go along with this. The two northern sections, East and West, are going to become closely interconnected economically. And then during the Civil War, the South would obviously be isolated. Uh, the social results of industrialization so you have the division of labor so work was more specialized work at home was less significant women's work was now seen as less valuable and the home was no longer the center of uh, economic production so it grew into a refuge from the world of work that became the separate sphere of women this is going to lead to the idea of the cult of domesticity uh, we're going to get a lot of growth in the cities we're going to get a lot of rapid urbanization Obviously, and with that ur urbanization, you're going to get the problems that goes with it. There's going to be more social stratification, so the rich versus the poor. There's going to be a major gap in wealth that will exist because, you you know, you have your unskilled workers. They were the worst off, and the, the poor is going to account at times for half of the urban population. The... A lot of your, your old immigration, so English and German and Irish, this is still going to account for the largest percent of population increase. Uh, your for, the foreign commerce is going to account for about 7% of the U.S. economy. Uh, cotton will account for, a, for about 50% of all U.S. exports, so that's going to be one of our main ones. Uh, after 1846... United States agriculture is going to play a larger role in trade with Britain, and Americans are generally are going to import more than the export. So these they're going to import manufactured goods and export agricultural goods.